morning, everybody, um, and welcome to Tales from the Heart. I did forget one thing. I have some funky new artwork for Tales from the Heart to present to y'all this year, but you're going to be getting that later. Um, we have a judged up studio here in Denville, New Jersey for the HCMA's uh, podcast studio now, and we are welcoming Dr. Martin Marin on, I got to look at the calendar, it's January 14th, 2022. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And we, we just want to be clear that it's 2022, not 2020, letter T-O-O, which we don't want 2020 again. So we're hoping that it is a healthy, happy New Year for everybody and that COVID just behaves itself and goes away. Love, love the studio. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was our winter project. So uh our funky light, our little logo. I do want to take a second and tell you what's behind us. So 42,048,000 times your heart beats every year. So that reminds us that things are going on every day and we just keep moving. The little sign that you can't quite read so well says start every day with a grateful heart. And you'll see a little painting behind me. It is a vase. And uh, it was painted by a woman named Heather Irwin, who was an HCM warrior who also went to transplant and sadly passed away three years after her transplant. But she painted that for me and wrote a beautiful little inscription on the back as I went to transplant. So I just kind of keep that there as a memorial to all those who are no longer with us. And uh, we have our cool new sign, which is um, neon and our logo, of course. So everything has meaning. Um, Everything has meaning and it's just fun. And the vase is actually a plastic human heart. Um, but we'll just let that be. I just thought that was kind of fun. So that's the studio update. And now we're going to get into our conversation and a couple of quick announcements. Number one, thank you again to our 2022 sponsors of Tales from the Heart, a podcast by the HCMA, Cytokinetics, Bristol Myers Squibb, Boston Scientific, and Invitae, again, are our sponsors for this program. Um, and Tenia is uh, a new company you're going to start hearing a little bit about. We're going to be talking some very specific podcast content with them. And they are a company focused on genetic therapies for HCM coming in the future. So um, it's going to be really cool. We're going to have a lot of different things this year. Dr. Marin has been kind enough to agree to join me once a month for a podcast. But we're going to switch it up a little this year. Every other month on every other week. I will be met with, uh, I'll be meeting with either Dr. Harry Lever of the Cleveland Clinic or Dr. Stephen Amon of the Mayo Clinic for sessions of Tales from the Heart. And then on alternative weeks, when I don't have one of our physician guests, we will have members of industry. We will have interesting patient stories. We will have this special series on genetics, which will run once a quarter. And we will also be visited by different medical professionals who are talking about recent publications and advances in HCM understanding, knowledge, or education. So we will be podcasting pretty much every Friday, typically at 11 a.m. And the content will change every week. And by the end of the year, we're going to have a lot more episodes. And we hope that you listen, you share them, and that hopefully we leave you a little bit better educated, a little bit of uh, inspiration and maybe a couple of laughs along the way too. So that's what we're planning for the year. Maybe that's a little, 
lofty of goals to be able to do all of that, but I think we got this. I definitely think we got this. As usual, our podcasts will be um, telecast on Facebook Live as we're recording them, so you'll be able to ask questions, and then they will live in the podcast stratosphere after that. There's my messages. Marty, it's the start of a year. Your patient has HCM. What should they be thinking about in terms of what the year holds for them? We're going to talk about testing. What should you be doing every year? How often should you be doing these things? Family screenings, et cetera. So let's start with what tests do patients with HCM need to have on an annual basic basis typically? Sure. Typically, uh, what we like to have patients do on an annual basis is check in with their cardiologist. Um, hopefully, cardiologist once a year with, uh, in particular, some expertise in HCM. Um, and that evaluation would include, usually, an echocardiogram. Um, doesn't always have to be a, an exercise study. If patients are doing well and stable in terms of symptoms, their symptoms are not different, they're doing okay, uh, that can just be a resting echo. And the reason we do that is just to look to see if there's been any changes in wall thickness, valve function, overall heart pump function. Um, so it's a good overall assessment to make sure that compared to the previous year, there's been no morphologic or anatomic changes that would be important to be on top of earlier. Um, and then usually if patients don't have uh, already an ICD, part of the annual evaluation for those patients is, is ambulatory monitoring. Um, so some form of a, of a monitor can be worn for a day or two or a couple of days or a week or two, depending on the circumstances. Um, that's to detect for abnormal rhythms from the bottom chamber and also from the top chamber, things like atrial fibrillation and non-sustained, what we call ventricular tachycardia, which if they were seen may change how we approach the treatment of that patient. So those are two really important tests. And of course, making sure that the history, you know, that there's nothing different that's, that, that's occurred over the last year that would be helpful, like if patients have felt like they were going to pass out or did pass out and didn't inform their, their, their healthcare provider at that time to let them know at that visit for sure, because that could also change how we approach, you know, treatment. So those are the core kind of annual uh, tests that we usually do. And then just to expand on that one other second, you know, usually if a patient doesn't have an ICD, um, and they're kind of young to middle-aged patient, part of the every three to five year uh, interval would be the MRI to repeat that test. Um, again, as long as the patient's stable, every three to five years would be appropriate to consider repeating the MRI to see if there's been any change in scar tissue in the heart muscle, and it gives us some other information that can be helpful as well. So those are the, that's the lay of the land essentially. Let's pause on MRI for a bit because this is evolving technology and evolving understanding. And Definitely. last night we had our big hearted warrior tour with UVA. So I got to talk to Chris Kramer about MRIs and HCM. So you can all watch that on Facebook as well, if you want to dig in a little bit deeper there, but let's talk about number one, can people with implantable defibrillators and or pacemakers now consider MRI as a viable option and is it as valuable to them as it would be to somebody without advice? 
Right. So the answer depends a little bit on what kind of device that, that that patient had implanted. There are some MRI devices that are what we call MRI compatible. They have the ability, um, because of the composition of the device, to safely undergo uh, an MRI of any part of the body, including you know the heart. Although even with MRI compatible devices, there can sometimes be interference from those devices that can make the assessment of certain parts of the of the heart difficult or challenging, you know, to do. So the bottom line is that you know the the main you know the main one of the main reasons that we do MRI and HCM is to help us to decide if an ICD is indicated or not in, in a patient. It really helps to inform that decision making. So if a patient already has an ICD because that's already been decided based on other uh, evidence in that patient. There, there, there often is not a really strong, compelling reason then to do another MRI. There can be exceptions to that, but for the most part, we don't usually need it. Okay. But it can be done if it's MRI. It can be done. It can be so done. Now let's talk about percentage of scar. So the new guidelines, thanks to work that you and others have done, indicate that scar burden of 15% or greater is an indicator of a high-risk phenotype that might want to consider an implantable defibrillator. Is the number 15 hard and fast? Is that when you start to think about device? What about somebody with 11, 12, 13% scar who's gotcha. middle age? What, what do we do with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the principle here at play here in answering that question is that, you know, I think it's important to recognize that all of these cut points that we have in largely in medicine in general, but specifically here for scar burden, they are in some ways arbitrary, you know, they, they, they're, they're arbitrary cut points. They, they come out of usually studies that are done where statistically speaking, that, that amount was associated with uh, an amount of risk increase that experts thought was, perhaps unacceptable to the general HCM population. Okay. So in that sense, they're, they're not, as you were just saying, all should be viewed as hard and fast, you know, absolute. In other words, lines in the sand, everything has to be taken into context. And so, you know, the, the principle here is that a lot of scar, which is what 15% or more represents the lot of scar occupying heart muscle itself can be associated with an increase in risk, okay? That may be important enough if it's 11% or 12%, particularly if there are other risk factors, you know, that a patient may have, like non-sustained VT or a family history. And so scar burden less than 15% in some patients may be important in terms of discussions about device. Maybe others would require a higher threshold of risk than 15%. It'd have to be 20% for them to be concerned enough for them to consider advice. So the bottom line is that we don't like to approach these situations ever as hard and fast, but to incorporate the concept here into individualized decision-making for patients. So evaluating risk assessment yep. each year for those yep. without devices. 
is something that everybody should be putting on their list of things to do for my HCM in the coming year. And they should do that every year. Revisit that number, look at those test results, have a discussion with their physician about has my risk changed, which also includes family history. Has something happened in the family that changes the picture of HCM? That's right. So it's not just the clinical tests, it's the symptoms, it's the family. It's maybe you found out about a cousin that you really weren't close with that had something happen and you need to discuss that with your HCM team. So what else should patients be discussing with you at the start of the year or at their annual visit? You know, I mean, that's an important point. I mean, just to kind of emphasize that for just one second. So, you know, a lot of patients, you know, that we see, they feel fine. They don't have any symptoms. And so it comes time to consider coming back for their annual visit and they say, Oh, I feel fine. And then they skip it, you know, because they don't think that there's anything relevant that's going to emerge in the conversation with their cardiologist because they feel fine. But again, to emphasize, you know, that is not the right way to think about it because risk of some aspects of HCM, like sudden death risk is something we determine independent of how a patient feels, right? So a patient can be asymptomatic, but yet still be at high risk for a potentially concerning arrhythmia that would only come to understanding based on test results that are part of these annual visits, okay? So that's why don't be, you know, don't be, um, you know, uh, you know, fooled into thinking that, that because I feel fine, that that's a reason not to be seen. That's, that, that just isn't correct. And so that's why we always emphasize to patients, please come back in a year, or if obviously something comes up beforehand, let us know. But if you're otherwise still okay, you still need to be seen. So we did have a question pop up on the Facebook feed that I will go back to on an MRI question. Okay. Um, if SCAR is present, and um, this comes a little bit from last night's meeting as well. If SCAR is present, is there a way to stop it or reverse it? Yeah, it's a good question, obviously. Um, and the answer is that we, you know, we don't really know today whether we really can do that, meaning decrease or stop more SCAR from forming in this disease with any intervention. So in other words, there are drugs available that do decrease or mitigate scar in other forms of heart disease, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, If you've had a heart attack from a blockage, there are drugs that can help decrease the scar formation that relates to that event. But we don't really have that evidence in HCM. So the bottom line is that we don't know that we can actually change or improve scar with drug therapy here. And a lot of that reason, just so everybody understands, the reason that that may be the case is that SCAR forms in HCM for different reasons than it forms in other heart diseases, okay? So the mechanism of why a patient with HCM has SCAR visible with MRI is a different reason than a patient who's had a heart attack or has another form of heart disease may have SCAR. So two different ball games which is why those drugs that are used in other diseases may not be effective in HCM. Great, great answer. Thank you for that. So we know 
that not everybody who has risk has symptoms. So we know people can be lulled into a false sense of security because they feel okay and they don't feel like they're at risk. These are the scariest group of people that I talk with because it is really difficult for any person to look in the mirror and think, I could drop dead suddenly and I feel just fine. Right. So that emotional disconnect, which I think is completely normal because who thinks that they're going to have a cardiac arrest and not be here tomorrow. It's one that I encourage patients to really talk to other patients about as well as their physicians and maybe mental health professionals as well, because it is a big burden to live with that you're, you're living at risk. Um, When we all look at this, we all live at risk every day for all kinds of different things, whether it be COVID or getting hit by a car while crossing the street or whatever. But there's something very different about living with the risk internally that is unpredictable. So if somebody has told you from a reputable HCM center and reputable physicians that you are at advanced risk, heed the warning. It may be the only one you get. Anything else to add on that topic, Marty? Yeah, no, I mean, I I think you're absolutely, obviously, obviously right on the mark. I mean, it's so important because look, there's so many burdens that we all carry with us and, and, and it's a very complicated life. It's a complicated world. And, you know, this is a complicated and, 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 and very difficult disease to live with, you know, um, and it presents a lot of challenges in terms of how people, you know, perceive the risk and live with the risk. It can be very hard. That's understandable. I mean, these are burdens to live with the possibility that you could have an out of the blue arrhythmia, even though you're feeling good is a huge burden. And so you got to, you know, I think we all have to recognize that as the community and really help patients to get the help they need to deal with that really challenging issue. And um, as we've talked about before on other, 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 other uh, podcasts, you know, we both have, we both have sought that kind of advice and guidance from mental health, you know, providers for our own issues that, you know, you know, some of that may obviously for you have been HCM for me, it wasn't HCM, but I was still challenging other, I had other burdens and challenges that I needed help with. This is an area that the HCMA will be focusing a great deal on in the coming year and years ahead, because we need to be treated as an entire entity, not just our hearts. Our minds are connected to our hearts. We have complicated lives regardless of HCM, but add HCM on top of it and it does get a little bit more burdensome. So, and I think on that note, you know, that's exactly right. I think, you know, part of maybe what we need to start to think more about too is emphasizing the importance of this concept in the comprehensive HCM centers of excellence, right? So that, right, so that a center of excellence is not just one that can do all the procedures and the counseling for uh, disease management the right way, but also incorporate these other aspects of the comprehensive care that these, that all of our patients need, including this. So mental health advice, they also include nutrition, also include um, exercise advice, exactly workplace issues. Yeah, there's a lot. We're dealing with some unique burdens here. Absolutely. The model needs to change to reflect that. 
and you and I are going to work on that this year. So I'm excited about that. That's a really important and exciting way of, 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 of approaching it. We need to work on that. And, and if we can make that happen in more places, then I think everyone's going to benefit. One of the other areas that we collectively all need to get a little bit better at is health equity making sure that those from underserved communities have access to HCM care, making sure those without the financial resources have access to care and mini announcement coming here, little flashy lights here. Um, On January 9th, the HCMA started something new called the Lori Fund. Lori being my sister who passed away in 1995 from mismanaged HCM. Um, Lori was a single mom. And she struggled with, you know, just basic single mom stuff, supporting her kids and finding the resources for those extras, which included a lot of cardiology care and visits. So this year on what would have been her 63rd birthday, we began the Lori Fund, which will provide micro grants to patients who need help getting to a center of excellence for care or to a heart transplant program for evaluation of HCM transplant necessity. So once we reach $5,000 into the fund, we will then start offering applications for micro grants. Um, We're working on a couple of other ideas with Lyft and Uber to help with some transportation issues there through some grant opportunities. So stay tuned for more information. And we're hoping that we can offer a lot more resources over the coming year and make sure people can get to care. So We want to take care of the whole person. We know it's tough. We know financially insurance policies have higher deductibles than ever before. Co-pays are a challenge. Um, And that's part of like planning the year. So we've talked about the physical. Um, So we're going to go into two other topics. We're going to talk about, you know, affording it and looking at your healthcare plan and making sure you're making the most out of the resources that are available to you through your health insurance options. And then the family screening aspect. So let's talk about the family screening stuff first. So if I'm a a parent of a child under the age of 25, 26, they're still on my insurance, the child is at risk for HCM. Um, Let's start with the group of non-genetically tested people because that's, or or non-identified gene mutation people, because that's a bigger pool than the others. What should families be doing every year or how often should they be screening these kids? or young adults? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the answer is that, you know, you want to be screening children. Uh, you know, usually it's every year, year and a half, beginning for sure, without question, at the beginning or start of puberty, you know, and then that every year to year and a half, echo and EKG, And that also may include a baseline MRI as well for screening should continue, you know, through the end of, of, of maturity. And then it can be, if it's normal, then that screening strategy can be uh, a little bit less stringent every couple of years until, you know, usually midlife is what we say. Screening can start though, you know, the echo and the, you could start earlier than puberty um, if, patients and families uh, want that, or there is some indication that it should occur earlier. For example, obviously symptoms or, you know, possibly a high risk family uh, or the child is maybe engaged in particularly vigorous physical activities, then earlier screening before puberty is also reasonable. Okay. If they're gene positive, 
Is there any difference in how often they should be clinically screened? Yeah, there's no difference. If genetic testing has been done and the, and the child is, is, is identified as having the, the same disease causing mutation as, as, as the father or mother, um, and, the, and the imaging has, has been normal, meaning there's no increase in wall thickness, then the frequency to continue screening, to look for conversion, potentially conversion to HCM, occurs at the same frequency that we just talked about. Okay. So now let's just kind of take a slight shift into the finances because this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Okay. If we're suggesting that families screen their children every year and a half or so, there are ways to kind of come up with a strategy that works so that maybe we can skip a full year on the calendar for insurance purposes. So you want to stop and think about what month I'm screening the child this year and next year. And can we, can we do one at the very end of the year based on deductible and then maybe wait until the beginning of the following year and have that year of reprieve from some of these deductibles and co-pays. So I think these are conversations people can have with their care team. Like I'd like to come in in November, December, get the child screened. So I'm on this plan year and then I'm going to skip the next calendar year. And then I'm going to come in in January, February of the, of the the third year in a sense. So we can be financially responsible and not destroy families finances uh, meanwhile, while we're talking about how to strategize this, which is really a little bit nauseating to me to have to have that conversation, we at the HCMA, in collaboration with all of you, need to be fighting for more reasonable copays and deductibles and keeping healthcare actually affordable and getting rid of some of these horrid policies that are out there that just destroy people financially. Um, so, is that a decent strategy to consider for family screening? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I think that obviously is an important consideration. I'll just also say too that another important consideration, you know, is 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 and and I'm, I'm not saying this in a light way. I mean, it's kind of true actually that you know part of making considerations about annual visits for screening and and otherwise too, if you're if you're a patient who needs to be seen, is that. You know, we have a lot of patients in Boston who don't want to come in the winter. So weather, weather, actually, because you actually, in all seriousness, I mean, you want to, you know, you want to be able to look forward in some way too. you know, with all these other obstacles that exist, you know, including bad weather to being able to go to your center um, in a way that will make it less challenging than other times as well. So, you know, just another thing to consider. You want to be. Snowstorms, ice storms, walking the streets of Boston with piles of snow. I've done it. It's not fun. It isn't fun. And um, we understand how that can be very challenging and frustrating to patients. So if it means changing your visit to the warmer months, then by all means, do it. Okay. Now let's talk about planning a surgery. Maybe you've got obstruction. Your symptoms are getting worse. Yeah. You're thinking it's time for my myectomy. You just brought up a great point. Do I want to recover in the winter? Do I want to recover right. in the summer? Do I want to, you know, am I a fall person? Do I want to be off of work in the fall? You have the ability to plan some of this to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Just to, so just to kind of clarify that for those that, you know, may not mean, uh, may not exactly understand what you mean by to, to, to a certain degree. 
mean you have a plan, you have the ability to plan to a certain degree. What does that mean? That means that for this indication of myectomy to get rid of the obstruction, which is causing that patient's frustrating symptoms, you know, we're largely doing that procedure for the vast majority of patients. There can be exceptions, but for the vast majority of patients, we're doing that procedure, the myectomy, to improve quality of life, not as a measure to um, not as a reason for life and death. It's really for largely for symptom improvement, which is obviously still huge, uh, obviously. Um, but that does give the flexibility, as you were just said, to decide on timing more than it would, of course, if it was about life or death. So because there is that opportunity here for this procedure and this disease to have some flexibility, then it has to be then the decision has to incorporate all these factors that, you know, you've been talking about, um, including, you know, an individual patient's considerations for job, you know, can they, can they take off at certain times? I mean, for example, we've seen patients that are accountants that are not going to have a myectomy, you know, in April during tax season, it just isn't going to work because all the livelihood is dependent on them being available in that capacity. Um, you know, and there are obviously many, many different school teachers options. can take summer break and recover through their summer break and not miss work in a way that works professionally. Yeah, yeah, so professional commitments, family commitments. Some people have weddings and you know big life events that you know are important to consider in terms of timing here too, of course. Um, and then, if, and then you know when they you know and then there are expectations that if they really want to feel better as soon as possible, then that, that's a factor as well. They don't want to you know no matter what they don't want to delay a treatment that's going to make them feel better. Um, so all those are considerations that you should bring up with your cardiologist in terms of what is the best timing for me. So the same goes for to a certain extent ICD placement or replacement. So you'll want to take a look at the life of your device. If you're coming to end of, you know, life on the device and you've already met all your co-pays and deductibles for the year, that might mean you want to get it done before the end of year. If you haven't, you might want to wait till January 1st. So you're starting off the new year because that's going to be a big hit to your policy. So we're just talking about being a little bit fiscally responsible when you can there's a couple of things you can control, but not everything. But just on that example about the ICD, it does differ, of course, a little bit compared to the myectomy, because when we're talking about somebody, not a lead change or, or a battery change, but we're talking about a recommendation that a patient gets an ICD because they are considered to be at increased risk for a life-threatening rhythm due to HCM. You know, what I tell patients in that situation, of course, I mean, it, you know, there's a little bit of flexibility in terms of timing, but that is not a decision to defer for months or longer if they feel that that's the right choice for them, you know, because completely agree, unprotected. So just to clarify, a little different because the outcomes are different in those two issues. Completely different. It's replacement, battery life, those types of issues. You, you have a little bit of wiggle room there. Uh, you've been just found to be at high risk. You got to do what you got to do when you got to do it. Um, okay. So lots of messages coming in on Facebook. I'm going to pause and just go over a couple of things. Lots of hellos and whatnot. Um, we've got France watching. We've got India. We've got, wow, we got a lot of internationals today. Um, and New Jersey, of course. Spain. Wow, we're really hitting the world today, Marty. Um, question about obstruction. Um, 
exercise and HCM and obstruction, um, weightlifting, um, five kilograms and climbing stairs. Is that an okay kind of weight limit if you're an obstructed HCM? This question's coming from India. So access to care is a little bit different there. Um, what recommendations might you give? Here's what our, here's what we, here's what we say. Um, you know, at least this is what we do at Tufts in Boston in terms of counseling patients about that question is for physical activities, whether you have obstruction or not, it's, it's, it applies to just HCM in general is that for physical activities, you know, mild to moderate recreational aerobic level activity is fine. So at peak exercise, whatever that may be, you know, a, a bike or elliptical machine or a walk at peak exercise, you know, you really should be able to be, able to complete sentences and words without straining to complete them. Okay. If somebody was theoretically next to you and in that level, you can kind of go as long as you want, avoiding burst exertion, you know, kind of interval training where you're kind of taking yourself from zero to 60 quick physically. We don't want you to do that. So steady, even, and then a nice cool down at the end, staying well hydrated, of course, throughout that entire activity as well as throughout the day but particularly during the activity. And then for lifting, um, we generally say that you don't want to be in a situation where you're lifting an object, whether it's a weight or an other form of object, where you're straining, you're bearing down to lift the object up because then you're releasing a lot of adrenaline, which we consider to be potentially adverse. So you want to be able to, again, be fully in control, able to complete sentences or words if you are lifting an object without any problem. Um, so those are our guidelines in a way for that, those two issues. Okay. We have a question that is an unanswerable via podcast, Facebook cast. Um, so Jess, I'm going to ask you to call the office on that one. It's a complex question, um, but I will get some input from Marty here. Um, so I'm going to give you a hypothetical that kind of meets Jess, but doesn't because there's some other factors here that are just a little too complex for Facebook. Um, In terms of cardiac MRI and frequency of screening of an 18 year old, if somebody has got borderline measurements at 18 through MRI, so I'm going to throw some numbers out. I don't know what these real numbers are for this individual. So let's say they're 13, 14 millimeter wall measurements in an 18 year old, but there's also a positive gene. Um, is, does that change the meaning of the measurement when you're gene positive and your gray area and measurements? Yeah, the answer is that it can. Absolutely. Um, in fact, we, you know, we, we uh, talked a lot about that in terms of the recent guidelines for HCM and we uh, put in in those guidelines, you know, clear statements that address that scenario, which is that border what what has been called borderline wall thickness measurements of thirteen to fourteen, let's say, with a family history of HC and a patient who has a family history of HCM, and you know, or in this case has has assumed the gene, the pathogenic gene that's been identified in other family members with HCM, you know, can be consistent with a a diagnosis of HCM. We, we, we would, in some cases, consider that patient to have a clinic, what we call a clinical diagnosis of HCM with the combination of a pathogenic gene and 13 to 14 millimeters. 
Thank you. It was a complicated question. Um, and Cindy says, thank you. She is a patient and very thankful. So pivoting for a moment as to what's coming in 2022, clinical trials, we got a lot of stuff percolating. Um, we know that Mavic Hampton is due to get um, its FDA uh, verdict, in it, for lack of a better word, uh, hopefully in April. So that might become a player in the field. But then there's these other clinical trials for agents similar and different for the treatment of obstruction. So we have the Affy Campton uh, trial with cytokinetics that's going to be opening up soon. HCMA will be assisting in recruitment strategy for that as well. And then Celtrion's um, agent, which is a disopyramide alternative. So what can patients look forward to in the obstructed world in terms of clinical trials that they might be able to participate in in 2022? Yeah, so I think if you're a symptomatic obstructed patient, you know, the future in terms of options is looking better. And, and, and in fact, maybe in a lot of ways, we're entering a new era in that way um, for options that could be available to such a patient. Um, and, and of course, what we're talking about is the potential option for a, additional drug therapy that may become available clinically in terms of Mavicampton, which is the first generation of a new class of drugs called myosin inhibitors, which decrease the, the gradient or obstruction to enable patients to feel better with that pill. Um, just to make a couple comments on that, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that, you know, that's currently being looked at, meaning getting approval with the regulatory agency in the United States, that's the FDA for approval, you know, that's where it's being reviewed currently, actually, um, because it has already completed what's called a phase three trial, okay? So that information about the strengths and limitations of the drug are being reviewed at the FDA, and there'll be a decision of some sort, probably mid-2022, mid-time this year, as you just said. I just want to kind of, and we could probably maybe have an entire podcast about this, and I'm sure we will in some sense, but just for everybody listening, I mean, that we don't know a number of things in terms of that decision. It may not be a binary, just yes or no. It's, you know, it may involve things that are more complicated than that in terms of approval. I don't know. I'm just sort of speculating based on precedents and other examples. But in this particular situation, you know, there may be a scenario where the drug could only be available by certain providers or certain centers um, or, certain kinds of testing at certain kinds of centers will be mandated, you know, to gain access to that drug. Um, so it may not be something that's widespread availability is clear right away. Um, and it also may involve, as we've talked about already, really complicated issues re- surrounding pricing of the drug for which, you know, there's been a lot of discussion and we don't know the answer to, but there's also that aspect to, to it. So, the, the bottom line is that it's, a, it's 2022 is going to be a very exciting year for the potential of other options, although it's going to be complicated, too, in terms of the details there. OK, um, I think it's also a very exciting year because for those that are interested in the opportunity to be involved in in learning more about the, the second generation myosin inhibitor called Afikampton which has a little bit of a different profile from a pharmacologic standpoint than Mavicampton, there is going to be the start of a phase three study 
looking at that drug that will be enrolling patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM all across different centers in the United States and the world. And so we're going to, you know, have the opportunity for some patients to be involved in that. Um, and then ultimately finding out, you know, how that looks in terms of efficacy and safety and, 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 and so forth. And so that's great too. And then as you said too, other opportunities for clinical trials in other drugs for obstructive HCM that are different than the myosin inhibitors um, that will be available for patients to be involved in, which is awesome too, because that's another opportunity for options that, that could help patients here. So all kinds of different avenues to consider in 2022 for symptomatic obstructive HCM. It's going to be a very important year for that reason. So let's talk for a moment about non-obstructives. So we started a, cl- a recruitment effort for a company called Imbria for a new drug for non-obstructive symptomatic patients. Um, we had a little bit of a challenge in getting that uh, recruitment process started. I think a little bit of COVID, a little bit of um, uh, access issues may have been at play there. And we're going to relaunch the survey. So if you participated in the survey and you haven't heard from a clinical coordinator yet, we're going to be circling back with you on that, but we're going to be offering it to new people. But for this trial, we're looking for non-obstructed symptomatic. So if you're asymptomatic, don't fill out the survey because you're not going to qualify. Um, But we're going to want those people who are experiencing shortness of breath, chest pain, um, dizziness associated with non-obstructed HCM. And you're one of the sites for the Embrya trial. So anything else patients should know about this opportunity? Well, just that it's, you know, these opportunities for non-obstructive HCM, um, whether it's Embrya or others that may come forward either in 2022 or, you know, or after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So important because, you know, as we've said before in different podcasts, in a way, in a way, the non-obstructive HCM patients are, in a way, a bigger unmet need for, for help because they don't have nearly as many options for treatment to make them feel better that the obstructive patients do, okay? And so for that reason, perhaps alone, you know, engage, if you're a non-obstructive symptomatic patient, engaging in when exploring the opportunity to participate in these trials is so important because um, we need to be able to get to a point where we can offer patients new treatments, you know, for this to improve quality of life. So that, that's the, what I'd say there. I mean, it, you know, if you're non-obstructive, please give thought to exploring um, opportunities that are currently available and that will become available to participate in clinical trials to further advance our understanding in particular for this group of patients. Couldn't agree more. And HCMA is happy to be a partner in some of these recruitment efforts. I want to take a few minutes to talk about what we're doing globally. And this is, um, oh, thank you for my staff member who just posted the survey availability for the Embrya study. So jump on onto that if you are a non-obstructive symptomatic person. Um, Okay, so legislative initiatives. The HCMA is embarking on something pretty cool, pretty big, and hopefully game-changing. About five, six years ago in the state of New Jersey, we passed a piece of legislation that helped healthcare providers identify those who were at risk for familial heart disease. HCM is one of the diseases we're looking for, obviously what we're most interested in, and why we gave the 
piece of legislation, a cute name. We call it the HCM Act, but that stands for Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act. We would like all physicians to be trained in diseases that can cause cardiac disease in the young, sudden cardiac arrest in the young, and we want those individuals to be trained to know when to make referrals to to cardiologists. So this piece of legislation, just it's very logical. Have physicians ask the same questions on a well child exam as they ask on a pre-participation sports screening. Same questions and providing that medical education to the providers so they know what to do with that information. That's what we're looking to pass. Nothing complicated, nothing partisan, nothing that's really even going to add cost because once we get this rolling, I've got commitment from industry to pay for the training modules that the professionals will need to take. So it will be free CME courses that will be sponsored by HCMA's efforts to go fundraise for this. And we're going to bring together a consortium of other organizations to help create that curriculum. So we can help on the HCM front and probably a little bit on the dilated cardiomyopathy front with some of our medical providers, but Marfan syndrome, long QT syndrome, other channelopathies, um, other genetic disorders, we're going to bring in those organizations to make sure that the education is robust and is scientifically sound and not salesy pharma kind of language of what treatments that they can give. We want to do disease education. And that's going to be part of the HCM Act initiative. So you can go on our website right now. And I'm going to guess that Ross is probably right on top of this and is going to put the link to our UJOIN page where you can just click and send a letter to your elected official. You can write your own story right there and you can even do a video. And that video can, you can tell your story to your, to your elected officials so that they can understand why you think this is very important and how early diagnosis may have made a difference in your family. Big project there. And Marty and I are co-faculty on a project called HCM Academy. Marty, you want to talk a little bit about what HCM Academy is? Yeah, sure. It's a, you know, it's a big initiative aimed at improving or elevating sort of the overall education about HCM to providers all across right now, most of different areas of the United States. So it's a um, company that, you know, specializes in putting together these kinds of educational initiatives and strategies. And uh, they've been given support from some of the pharmaceutical companies to do this. And essentially, you know, what we hope to accomplish is the goal of improving, closing the gap, so to speak, of the uh, kind of educational understanding about how to approach diagnosis, management of HCM, when to refer patients, you know, with the disease to uh, expert centers, all kinds of different aspects of HCM management to overall improve the delivery of care for this disease in the United States and hopefully taking that, that effort on the road, so to speak, globally to other countries outside the United States at some point soon. Uh, yes, I'm very excited about that global initiative. But for today, and what you guys can do who are watching now, or if you're watching it later and you're reviewing it, go to the HCMA website, look directly on the programs, and you'll see HCM Academy listed. All you need to do is click on there. And if you are a patient, you can recommend your individual provider 
be invited to HCM Academy. The trick here is you really need to get us an email address. We will do some paper mailing, but it's less effective. So if you can get an email address to your physician, we can email them an offer to join one of these programs. There's online learning ability that they can do independently. They can join a discussion group and have a a live presentation as well. Um, And there are five amazing case studies from our HCM Warriors, all featured. And their stories are just absolutely amazing. And you with it was really hard to find five stories that crossed all of the issues related to HCM from myectomy to ICD to sudden cardiac arrest to family screenings to transplant and everything in between. But we did it in five stories, um, which was amazing. So go watch those, you know, go submit that to your doctor and we would be happy to see them in a training. The last announcement, and we're going to wrap up because we both have things to do at 12 o'clock, is February 23rd. This is an unofficial official announcement that February 23rd will be HCM Day in America. And every year thereafter, the last Wednesday of February of Heart Month, we're going to continue the HCM Day initiative. Um, we're not going to pick a day of the month. We're going to pick a, you know that last Wednesday. American Heart kind of has the first week of the month for all the media effort. Uh, Women Heart and the Go Red campaign kind of have the second week. So that by the third week, media outlets are looking for stories. <laughs> So we want to be that opportunity to round out HCM or to a heart month with HCM messaging. Mm-hmm. For this first initiative, we are going to be featuring an HCM warrior of the day every month of February. We will have a page on our website dedicated to the tributes to all of these individuals, most of which are living, some of which are deceased. So there will be all kinds of wonderful HCM warrior stories. And we're asking you all all month long, please share these on your social media feeds so we can raise awareness of HCM and get the attention that we all need and deserve to not only be recognized as living with invisible disabilities in some cases or at risk of serious consequences from an underlying heart condition, but it also raises public awareness that we need resources. We need to make sure that these patients are handled in the proper way. We need clinical trial to be done. We need NIH funding for research. We need to make it better for these patients. And the first way we're going to do that is to start giving the message to the lay public about what HCM is, what HCMA has been doing for 25 years, and make sure that HCM becomes a household word um, and people understand what it stands for. They might not be able to pronounce it, but if they can get HCM, we won't be picky that they can't say hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, but hey, that could be a challenge too, right? right. So February 23rd, Marty's going to be back here with me online. We're not exactly sure what the entire content for the day is going to be, but we're going to have some online streaming. Um, we're going to try to get some media opportunities. And from there, we'll go a little bit further. So that's what's coming up this year, people. Lots to do. Lots of ways to get involved. Go visit our volunteer tab. You can join. We've got committees that we're um, recruiting for. And we have a really cool new committee that's being organized here at the HCMA that Marty's a co-chair of, our medical affairs committee, to see what we can do with some of this amazing information that we have here in the HCMA from your wonderful stories that you've shared with us. How do we get this published? How do we get this out to, you know, the people who need to know about it? So lots going on. Other than that, we're sitting here doing nothing all day, right? (laughs) Trying to stay safe. That's what we're doing right now. That's exactly. Unfortunately, still. 
So that's all great. Sounds amazing. It's probably one of the busiest years we've ever had in terms of looking forward to all of these different aspects and components. So um, I think you summarized it really well. It's great. Fantastic. Marty, thanks for joining us on Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. And I hope everybody liked the new backdrop and our new little uh, attitude here. And uh, we look forward to next week where I will be joined with a good friend of yours, Uh, The book is over on my desk. Michael Papale will be joining me for Tales from the Heart. Uh, Michael is, uh, Mike is a HCM warrior, a cardiac arrest survivor, uh, an AED advocate, and is doing some amazing work on his own. But we thought we'd bring him to Tales from the Heart to share his story with the HCM community. Mike's an incredible human and he has an incredible story and and insights that are just so valuable to hear and also a great writer he wrote an amazing book to kind of put it all together you don't want to miss that that's that's it's going to be really really interesting um and he's a great guy so support him by by listening and who wrote the foreword to his book (laughs) yeah well i was an honored to ask i was actually really honored to be asked to write that you know for mike um meant a lot to me and it was really delightful and, 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 and as I said, an honor to do it. So thank, thank you, Mike. All right. We'll see you in a month here, Marty. And uh, it will be American Heart Month. So we'll be talking all things HCM awareness. Yep. So join us next month and join us next week for Mike. Thanks a lot, Marty. Okay. Take care. Be safe, everyone. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4hcmwarriors. That's the number 4hcmwarriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time.